I live in, in uh, West Bloomfield, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit, but I spend my winters in uh, Delray Beach, Florida. So I'm calling you from Delray Beach, Florida. That's cool. Yeah, I always like to write that stuff down. I always figure like if one day I'm in Michigan, I can text you, we can grab a beer or something. So a little, it's a little colder in Michigan right now than it is in Delray, <laughs> in Delray Beach. I'm sure. Yeah. So how are, th have, how are things in Poland? Good, good. They're, they're well. So I'm with my, with my grandpa who you just saw here, who's, uh, he's 82 years old and, and basically with COVID and everything, my school's still online. So I decided to take advantage of this and come to visit him. So I've been here for about a month and then I spent, uh, probably one more, I'm going to spend one more month here. So it's really nice getting to be with him, enjoy my grandpa, just, you know, live our little lives together in Poland. It's fun. Years ago, we, um, we went on a trip with, that, with our synagogue, and it was called From Darkness to Light. Mm -hmm. And we uh, toured um, various Holocaust sites, uh, prison camps, etc., um, death camps. And then you end the trip in Israel mm -hmm. from darkness to light. Makes sense, but, the, uh, but our time, but our time in Poland was uh, was quite cool. We had a, a neat guide, and we we ate uh, borscht at a at a great restaurant. <laughs> I I can't remember the name of it in Krakow, um, and I had a I had a great time. Poland's a neat place. Yeah, no, Poland's great. It's full of uh, the people here are very lively and full of life, and it's a it's a culture that's really based on if you if you read Polish history, it's really a very surprising country very um how would you say it very progressive in some ways i mean it was one of the most progressive countries in terms of religious tolerance uh which is why a lot of jews were actually here because they were escaping the the religious intolerance they found in other places and obviously when the nazis came that all ended but uh it's it's a it's a country also that's always been between a rock and a hard place with russia and germany so it's got a very fiery spirit of, of revolution. And, you know, so it's, it's an, it's a really interesting place. And what I find most amazing when I'm here is just how little crime there is. You know, I come from New York, not that, not that the crime <laughs> there is crazy, but it's just like, there, there are certain areas in New York where you would be careful at night. There's certain times where you're kind of more aware of your surroundings here. There is not like an, I'm in Warsaw, which is the capital. There's not one moment where you feel unsafe, no matter what you do. And it's crazy. And I think it's based off of the people and just the standards of living, I guess, are pretty good. I'm not exactly sure, but it just feels safe. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's an, it's a, I had, I had a good time there and it's an, and I, I, I don't know, I wasn't there long enough or, or uh, I don't know the, the country well enough to comment on what you said. I will say that, uh, that, um, it was apparent to me, and the guard and the guide agreed that anti-Semitism did not end with uh, the Nazis leaving Poland. Um, the The Jewish population obviously has not recovered in Poland. Um, I don't, I'm not sure it ever will. Uh, and and there's some aspects of uh, of the Holocaust, unfortunately, where uh, people who oppress the Jews benefited from it and don't want to give it back. So, yeah. so you have that, that, 
uh, underlying, um, uh, I, I don't want to call it anti-Semitism necessarily, but, but um, going back to the way things were is I don't think going to happen. But, uh, but again, yeah, I don't know. To everybody be everybody you, was very nice to us. Enough. Yeah. I don't know enough about um, that side of things. I, I know that there are cases of anti-Semitism still, but I mean, obviously that's true of any place. So I can't tell you just, I, I right. don't know enough to, to agree or disagree with you. I'm sure there's an element of that, that that's just logical that some people would benefit yep. and then be able to, yep. uh, to, to not keep, uh, to not return whatever was stolen or things like that. I'm sure. And so you know, I guess, that, yeah, one, one more, one more little thing about the, uh, about this, because I did, I wrote a novella, uh, uh, about, um, a, a short little Holocaust novella that your listeners, by the way, can can get for free on my website, uh, markambello.com, if they go there and, and leave an email address. Uh, but the interesting thing about my trip to Poland was my family, my mother's side, comes from a small Polish village called Sanzamers, mm -hmm. which was almost exclusively Jewish back then. Do you and know, on, like, can you tell me sort of where it is in Poland? I, I, I really can't. Um, no worries. <laughs> but, I, but, I'm, but I'm on a bus going from one place to another. I, I want to say where, somewhere between Warsaw and Krakow, but I'm not positive. Um, and there was a sign that said, Sons of Mares, you know, 20 kilometers. And I'm going, let me off the bus. Let me. <laughs> <laughs> That's really uh, cool. Yeah, it was kind Did of. Did you neat. get to go? No, no. That uh, was my, let me off the bus. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, no, that's it's cool. It's uh, I recently was watching pictures of my family, like my grandmother, my grandpa, and I was watching these pictures, and and I think we don't necessarily realize until we're right in front of those moments how how cool it is to be connected to people from our past and to see where yep. we come from. Um, I've been speaking a lot to my grandpa lately. And so he tells me all these stories from childhood and how he had PTSD from World War II. Uh, you know, he was young. He, he's 82. So he was like seven or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, he was born in 39. So, so yeah, less than that. And who wants, uh, who, wants, who wants to be occupied, right? Yeah, no, exactly. And so, you know, some of his friends died, kids, school friends, you know, died in bombings. I mean, those are... Sure. And those are things where our generation, speaking mostly from like my end, you know, is we have no idea how bad things can get, you know, how it seems so remote. And that's why uh, apathy, which is present in my generation, and I'm sure every single generation is dangerous because it, it, it's based upon this sort of feeling that, well, everything is good now, so it will always be like that. But it doesn't take a lot to go towards very dark moments in history, right? It's, it's, um, so you've, you know, you have that in your family. I have that in my family. And those are definitely things that I draw upon in my analysis of the world, as I'm sure you do as well, when you're writing, these are things that must have influenced your, uh, way of seeing social issues as being important, right? Because you know how dark it can, it can get. It's, it, it's funny because you, you're, you basically provided a, a great lead in to our ultimate conversation. Hey, which that's is, what I do. I'm a, I'm a podcast <laughs> host. <laughs> which is um, apathy is extremely 
dangerous mm -hmm. um, and unfortunate and sad. Uh, and when I practiced law, I practiced law in a, in a uh, suburb of Detroit. Um, I uh, handled cases in what we call the tri-county area of Detroit, which is Wayne, Oakland, and Macomb counties, all of which are suburbs, if you will, and the main city of Detroit. And when you practice law, you affect the lives of your clients, uh, maybe your clients' families, uh, but you know your impact, if you will, is limited to the problems of those particular clients. As an author, once I retired from practicing law, I discovered pretty quickly that writing a book about a particular topic reaches a much wider audience, uh, an international audience, and I can raise these, these social justice issues um, that my books cover uh, to a much broader cross-section of people. And I've consciously chosen not to remain silent about these things or be apathetic about them. And that, that's the unique and neat thing about becoming an author. Yeah, so you were, you were a, a, a lawyer and then you retired and became an author. Correct. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that's cool that there is, there's, there's definitely continuity in the way you describe it between those two um, careers. Now, I know when you were a lawyer, you worked on a very interesting case. I'm not sure how much you can talk about it. And I, I know it's always complicated when it gets to legal things, but can you talk a little bit about the, uh, you were involved in a case against a Catholic church, right? Correct. Um, two things about that. Uh, number one, uh, it was a case, it was the case of my career. It, it kind of fell into my lap. Um, it is what inspired me to become an author. Uh, when I was finished with the case, uh, I promised myself this would make a, an interesting book. And it, initially, the thought was that the book would be a nonfiction um, kind of thing, a, an account of what, it, what the experience felt like. Uh, and as the years went by, and I didn't write the book until 35 years later. Oh, wow. Uh, it, it, I decided that it could be a much more compelling piece if it was fictional. Some of it was inspired a, a little bit by the movie Spotlight. Um, although I, I had most of the book written before Spotlight even came out. Uh, but Spotlight, I, just I assume, it. is a movie about the abuses, sexual abuses in the Catholic Church. Yes. Uh, in the, in there was Boston, a, right? There was a large scandal in Boston. Yeah. Uh, and um, involving much more, much more, much, a, a much larger group of children than um, what happened in Detroit, although we're finding out that there are more victims. Um, and One thing about Spotlight, and I'll get back to, to my book, the, the, the consensus 
in the um, fictional media uh, expose world is that nobody wants to read about child abuse. Right. Uh, if you're going to pick a topic, don't write about child abuse. <laughs> yeah. uh, now, now that that may be true. I don't know. But what Spotlight did for me was tell me that that um, a piece of fiction about this situation uh, could be successful. And that's what I meant when I said it had an impact on my releasing the novel. But back in the 80s, uh, I handled a case where two boys had been molested by a Catholic priest. The church was complicit, not in the uh, priest's behavior, right. but in the, in the cover-up of the priest's crime. They had knowledge. They were complicit in covering it up. And what it felt like as a lawyer, when you run into a brick wall everywhere you go, that there was some powerful organization pulling strings behind the scene. Uh, back then, in the early 80s, uh, the incident, by the way, happened in the 70s. So you're talking almost 50 years ago now. Uh, clergy abuse was much more of a secret, and the church did a great job of keeping these things quiet. Um, how did they do that? They paid off victims hmm. before, litigation, before litigation ever started. If there and was litigation, they would seal the litigation files. They'd get the court to grant a uh, seal, uh, a, a, an order of silence. Now, they'd when you pay, they'd pay victims off to get them to do that, can you do that? Can you pay? A, is there a legal way to pay somebody off where they can't speak out against you anymore? Well, if you think about confidentiality agreements and non-disclosure agreements in business, uh, it's very similar um, in court. If if you pay somebody consideration for a particular event, a particular action or to prevent a particular action, they've received consideration for their silence. So, yeah, uh, judges would order um, seals. And, and to break them, you'd have to get permission of all the parties that were part of hmm. uh, that. Uh, I'm going to call it a cover. I'm going to call it a government-sponsored cover-up. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. These are these are public government files that a judge issued an order to prevent the release of the documents. And I went in front of the, a judge and I asked for the files to be released and they wouldn't release them. Uh, I had to I had to travel to seven states, interview witnesses uh, who used to live in, De in the Detroit area. Uh, and one by one. I exposed the cover-up, and that's uh, how uh, we ended up resolving the case for a uh, rather nice um, result um, for the 1980s. And so when you were participating in this case, was the abuse... You're saying at the time the abuse was not coming out, was not as known as it is now, right? I guess it was at the beginning when things were finally starting to come out. The scandal, the scandal was a dirty little secret back then. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and again, the church did a very good job of isolating the cases, isolating the victims, paying them off, whether, it, whether by litigation or not, uh, and uh, moving the priest, by the way, to another parish. But where, not getting rid of him, right? Where he where, would do it again. Yeah. Where he could do it again because they never told the new community that he was a pedophile. Uh, to this day, I still don't understand that one. What's the benefit to the church of hanging on to a pedophile and turning him loose onto the community? The, the, yeah. um, the theory was that there was, quote, a shortage of priests. Right. Uh, I'd rather have a lay uh, clergyman than have a <laughs> I agree. Yeah, a pedophile, <laughs> yeah. a pedophile priest. So I, I, I to this day, yeah. I've never, I've never understood that. The whole thing is really unbelievable if you think about it. Well, it's what happens when at the. I'm always interested in systems of power, I'm, and I'm a very, I'm very libertarian, and I'm very focused on freedom of the individual and the the importance of the individual. So I'm always very wary of big institutions, including the Catholic Church, and. The problem is all these institutions, before you even get into the realm of these organized conspiracies or anything like that, are just big institutions that are there to defend themselves because the systems grow so complex that there's just a lack of um, responsibility on each on any individual. And so everybody just kind of keeps flowing with a system. And so you have all these crazy sex scandals that happen. And nobody does anything about them because nobody really knows what to do. Or crazy at, at the very least, right? Before getting into like that, you know, people are bad or things like that. It's just a, a weakness within the system. Uh, or crazy any other kind of scandal. I, I mean, it. it yeah. Uh, a lot of my books, uh, I, I don't. I wouldn't say they're they're specifically about truth to power, but ultimately. Each one of them has some component of a truth to power story, and that you know when you're a little when you're a little plaintiff lawyer representing citizens, typically you're representing them against large corporations, uh, large institutions like the church or the government, uh, and every one of my books uh, features uh, 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 David. A client versus a Goliath defendant. Uh, that's what tort law is all about. Um, but anyway, the 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 uh, the first book, Betrayal of Faith, is a fictional account of that 1984, 82 to 84 case that I handled against the church. Yeah, no, that's really that's that's uh, that's very interesting. These are there are so many issues with with power in general what are some other you know you've written a lot of books what are some other social issues that are dear to your heart um well the first the first one obviously is the one we just talked about um to this day like i said i can't understand the motivation for a church uh the size of the catholic church to treat a parishioner this way uh and in in the case of the clergy abuse scandal, thousands, hundreds of thousands of parishioners mistreated by 
the Catholic Church hierarchy all the way to the Pope. I, I don't have any doubt at all that, that uh, the Vatican, way back in the 60s and 70s, knew about this and, and did very little to stop it. They, they preferred to cover it up. And what's your take on it? it what, what do you think is, are, are, how complicit are they? In your opinion, very. very. Uh, I, the, do you think the, they partake as well at the higher levels? I don't know. I don't think that. Uh, um, I, I would. It wouldn't surprise me, but I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is they thought that uh, that was the greater embarrassment. That disclosure of uh, this behavior within their. Um, Clergy was a was a bigger scandal than uh, the cover up, right? No, the cover up was was more important than the activity. Let's put yeah. it that way. They and, didn't uh, want, they didn't want to be embarrassed about it. And why do you think there are so many pedophiles in in the clergy or or in other institutions? We're talking about the clergy right now i'm sure it's true in a lot of other institutions why do you think that is do you do you, in your opinion because you've worked with the case right so you might have some more insight than yeah, I, a I, layman I, what do you think I, well i'm gonna i'm gonna answer the question almost as a lay person uh let's put it let's call me a lay person plus <laughs> um but i i think the clergy and this particular uh, the, the particular rules of the Catholic clergy allows a predator to hide in plain sight. And what you have is, for instance, a rule that says a person has to be celibate if, in order to be a Catholic priest. So step one, you're denying a person that which every one of us craves, sex. You have to assume that someone who's willing to say that, to pledge that, uh, has, if they're, if they're willing to try, has some kind of problem in the first place. A. B, what we know, and I don't think this is any... Has a, any sorry, just to interrupt. Has a problem in the sense that it's, it's crazy to even think you could do it? Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I, I believe it's crazy to request that of people. Yeah, that's a B. It does have a tendency, and I think that's proven throughout the clergy to attract uh, same sex people, uh, homosexuals. Now, I'm not equating and I want to be careful here. I'm not equating homosexuality with pedophilia. One has nothing to do with the other. But you're you're talking about someone Who's hiding something? And in, in many cases, um, priests are hiding the fact that they're having relationships with other priests. Um, and is that well-documented as, as, as well? Yeah, I think so. As, as, as to why, they, why it attracts pedophiles, that, that I really can't answer. That's a predatory behavior that... Um, Again, has nothing to do with homosexuality. The now, the again, yeah. the bigger, the biggest problem though is 
the um, complicity of the hierarchy. Okay, let's suppose that these policies, these these um, celibacy policies, these anti-sex policies, anti-marriage policies, um, attract predators. Let's just suppose that. That doesn't mean that you can't put a stop to it when you find out about it. And for the life of me, what I don't understand, and I've said it, I said it be earlier, what I don't understand is once you find a, a, a priest as a pedophile, he's gone. He's out of there. Yeah, especially that you could still keep the case quiet if it's about publicity, but just don't like it's even it, it's it, which would already not be great, but it's kind of a gray area, let's say. But it's definitely worse to not only seal the case and then go on as usual with the priest still like that. Yeah, you're right. That is completely just inexcusable. You can't really understand how that's happening. Let me let me give you a scenario uh, uh, and we can move on whenever you want. But yeah, but, yeah. No, but it's interesting. But I mean, you've, you've here, handled here, the thing. So I'm interested. Here, here's here's the actual scenario. Without naming names. The priest in my case was convicted of fourth-degree criminal sexual conduct. That is, he was, he was convicted that, in court. Yes, that is fondling. Um, his criminal conviction was sealed. That was hidden from the public. But his, he didn't the, go to jail? The, let me finish. Yeah, he went to jail for six months. Okay, all right, makes sense. Uh, but the conviction was sealed. Um, I, I pursue the case. I pursue the case knowing that there's a criminal conviction. But one of the other rules about uh, that priest pledge is a vow of poverty. This priest has no money. So my job is to prove that he did what he did with the knowledge of the Catholic Church, right? That's, I, I don't want to make this about money, but that's where the money was. Well, they deny any knowledge at all. They claim that they don't know anything about this until he's charged criminally and convicted. Not true. Turns out that there's a 1971 case where he molested four boys in Wyandotte, Michigan a suburb, a downriver suburb of Detroit. My clients were in a northwest suburb of Detroit where he got transferred. So he gets transferred from St. Joseph Parish in Wyandotte wow. after his conviction, uh, uh, before his conviction, excuse me, to Farmington where the incident in my case happened. And nobody knows what happened in Wyandotte. And I only found out about it through inadvertence, uh, they made a they made a slip. Uh, they mentioned it, and then I dig, dug dug out the uh, the the story and and found. Uh, I mentioned traveling to several seven states. I found the prior victims, and I interviewed every one of them and took their depositions. Now, I resolve my case. I resolve it without a seal. They transfer him to Cleveland, Ohio. 
Nobody in Cleveland, Ohio knows that he's a predator. I write a letter to the Cleveland Plain Dealer and tell them that they have a predator in their midst. Here is uh, the lawsuit I filed against them and the resolution that we agreed on. What does the church do? They transfer him to Baltimore, Maryland, where I have to do the same or I have to do the same thing all over again. It gets worse. Fast forward to 2020, 2021. You think we're done with this, right? Wow, still going I on. Get, I, get, I get a phone call from the Attorney General of Michigan, apparently 35, 40 years ago, there were more victims in Michigan that I didn't uncover. And he's now being prosecuted. The same priest in his 80s is now being prosecuted in Michigan for crimes that he was not convicted of in this, six, in this little six-month sentence that he served. So the story is like an, it's a never-ending saga. And to suggest that, oh, well, we didn't know he was a predator, which, you know, continues to be their MO, um, is absurd. I created in, in the book, I created a, an organization called The Coalition. Completely fictional, at least in my mind. It, it might be real, but uh, it's fictional. <laughs> and The Coalition's job is to cover these things up, quote, by any means possible. Uh, it's kind of a CIA clandestine right. organization run by an old um, uh, bishop uh, within the Catholic Church. I don't call them the Catholic Church, by the way. I call them the church. Uh, I decided not to pick on Catholics. I wanted to make the point that a huge Goliath organization can prey on innocent citizens if they're complicit in the crimes of their employees. Uh, and I figured that shouldn't necessarily be limited to the Catholic religion. It could be any religion or any organization. Um, so that's how it felt. It felt like, to me, if you... If you, you remember the movie, the, the Firm, or the book written yes, by John, John Grisham? Yes, I read the... Uh, sorry, I watched the, the film, and I've read right. John Grisham novels before. All right, now, now The Firm was about a law firm being run by the mob, right? Right. Spotlight is a film about the Boston scandal in the Catholic Church. I call Betrayal of Faith, Spotlight meets the firm. <laughs> what, you, what you've got is a, is a mob-type organization covering up criminal activity in the church. And... I think Spotlight Meets the Firm is a great um, analogy to betrayal of faith. Yeah, I, that's a that's a very interesting story. It's crazy. I didn't know. I mean, I, you know, you know about the scandal, but it's interesting to get an insider scoop because you get more of a an appreciation, or maybe that's not the right word, but a realization of how how crazy it is. So this guy has moved and moved and moved multiple places and yep. he's still doing these things. It's yeah, that is baffling. And you can't hide and say that they're, you know, they didn't know. 
most by of the these, way, most of these I, atrocities are always in plain sight. It's yeah, crazy. Yeah. yeah. By the way, the the you know I mentioned payoffs. Don't forget that that the vast majority of these kids come from families where perhaps the parents are divorced or there's some there's some family break where you where you seek comfort from the church or comfort mm. from the priest, uh, which which is why I call it a, a, a an abuse of faith or a betrayal of faith. Um, but the first thing they do before money gets discussed is they make the victim feel guilty. You can't do this to the, you can't expose this. He's a, he's a bad guy. We admit, but he's one bad guy. Please don't do this to the church. Mm. Don't you love, don't you love the church? Don't you appreciate the church? Don't you support the church? Right. The victim, the victim is caused is made to feel guilty. And that's an important part of the cover-up. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's psychological. Yeah. No, that's very interesting. The, um, so you write about this issue, and then I imagine that's the first book you wrote, right? That's that's correct. That's, and then you that's started getting inspired. into other issues. I know you wrote one recently about immigration, right? Yep, I sure did. So can you get a, a little bit into that? Because I'm interested in your take on immigration and uh how how you wrote about it i i want to know what what you how you conceptualize the issue okay uh a couple of points to set it up the, the first thing was that that I, I wrote betrayal of faith as a bucket list item i was always going to write a book about the experience it was probably going to be nonfiction. It turned out to be fiction. Uh, I writing is out of my system. Uh, I'm not a writer. I just had a particular story I wanted to tell. I'm done. And then the 2016 election came along, and I started to wonder if a self-professed um, billionaire bigot might become president of the United States. And while I don't question anybody's politics or uh, think everybody has to agree with me, um, whether you like Donald Trump or not, for me, that was a scary thought. He basically launched his campaign by arguing that Mexicans were bringing drugs and crime, and he lumped them all together. Mm. I don't, I don't, sit here and suggest that some Mexicans or some Hispanics weren't bringing drugs and crime over the border. That's obviously true. But to suggest that as a nationality, all Mexicans are bringing drugs and crime is what he did. And that's obviously not kosher. <laughs> Secondly, if I may, if I may, just because I don't, I I never really felt fully like that's what he did in that speech. That's what but, he said. That's what he said. I'm not saying that's what he did. Don't I know, get, but don't, I don't, don't misunderstand me. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Yeah, I'm not. What I was, what I was concerned about, and again, this book was written back is in the 2016. Way he was, the way he was speaking in a in a is is he I somebody? Is he somebody that would behave like this in office? Okay, I see what you're saying. I was talking about his rhetoric because. The rhetoric could be interpreted in that way. 
I suppose. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a little story in a second, but yeah, but go ahead. No, I see the, what you're saying though. I, it makes sense. If you were, if you were, con, you could be concerned by the rhetoric that it could be an indication of like a, a, a yeah, that makes sense and, to me. And if you check the record, that's exactly what he said. He also said, I, Donald Trump, announce a full Muslim ban. He wanted to ban all Muslims from the United States, all travel. No, no Muslims in the United States. Now, I, I don't know that he would have deported um, Muslims who were here and had become citizens, but that's what he said. Um, so I, I said to myself, self, what would it look like if we actually had a president like this? And I wrote this book in four months called Betrayal of Justice that and this is the story I wanted to tell you, uh, that depicted a bigoted billionaire who becomes president and tries to do exactly what we're talking about. You didn't call him Donald Trump? I, no, his name is Ronald John. <laughs> okay. Now, Ronald, Ronald, like John, Ronald John is a bad guy. He's a terrible president. He's a terrible human being. And he and I completed the book prior to Trump winning the election. In fact, I never really thought he would. I thought Clinton would beat him. The book comes out, and I get attacked on social media for doing, quote, a hit job on the president. And my response was, check the copyright date. I wrote my book before he became president. Plus, so what? You should still be allowed so to if, do a hit so job. So hang on, hang. But it's not that. If you see it, if you see a similarity between the guy I wrote about and your guy, whose fault is that? <laughs> if he imitated my guy, I didn't imitate him. <laughs> my guy was president first. I can tell you were a lawyer just because you, you've got a way of thinking about it. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's just so funny. I did a hit job on Trump. Trump. Trump became president after the book came out. If he did every one of the things that I predicted he would do, and I'm not going to say I didn't write it inspired by him. I did. But he had a chance to be a different kind of guy. And he chose to be the guy I wrote about. Whose fault is that? That's the point. So that's my little, that's my little story about betrayal of justice. If you fast forward five books, because that's the second book. And what that did, um, AJ, is it, is it basically told me I could write a book, because I really didn't know, uh, I, but it told me I could write a book about something I didn't personally experience. The, the 2016 election was an experience, that's for sure. We all experienced it, but not everybody wrote a book about it. Uh, certainly not a book of fiction. Not, certainly not a book yeah. of fiction. Uh, so once I once I wrote that book, I realized I could write a book about uh, abuses of power and uh, books about abuses of power. I had now written two, and I started writing uh, similar books about other types of topics. So Betrayal in Blue became a, a book about white supremacy and and uh, the thin blue wall between. Good cops and bad. Mm -hmm. Betrayal in black 
was about cops shooting innocent black people. Betrayal High was about a, shoot, a school shooting. And the gun industry basically lobbying, using their power to, to prevent the kind of gun control that is necessary to stop those kinds of things. Um, and Supreme Betrayal, my sixth book, uh, is about a Supreme Court justice based on the Kavanaugh hearings uh, who uh, has a sexual assault in his past and tries to cover it up when he's appointed uh, to become a Supreme Court justice. And the brave woman who tries to prevent that from happening by making this sexual assault um, public. I think that's uh, good that you're doing, you're, you're, you're fictionalizing something that's real so that it becomes more digestible to read. And you can, it's almost like a, another way of, of getting to the story with perhaps in a more digestible way. It's more, it's more of a story. It's pleasant to read. It feels like you're reading a book, not, you know, it's maybe less frightening in some ways. You can gain a little bit of distance with the events and make them less school-like and more just pleasure, but still get the information. And, and it's a great way to, to advocate uh, things that I think are important, to, especially, especially in America so divided right now and, the, and these issues. Uh, look at the pandemic. How is the pandemic a political issue? Well, the, I, I, the pandemics, the problem with the pandemic is the consequences are political, right? Like if you, if you look at the way the pandemic's been going on, it is, there has been a huge transfer of wealth from the individual to the top 1%, right? So that becomes political because, well, how, how can it not, right? If one of the big political issues of our day is wealth inequality, and now you have one of the biggest wealth transfers of all time, it, it is going to become political. Um, when well, like well, The wealth transfer you speak about, though, happened long before the pandemic, A. And B, if you look at the handling of the pandemic, even when Trump was president, uh, because I don't, you know, there are things that he did with the pandemic that I praise, like coming up with a vaccine as quickly as he did. Uh, some people criticize that, because, you know, oh, this, this, this rush to develop a vaccine, it must not be safe. That may be true. Um, now that millions of people have been vaccinated without much consequence, I would suggest that it probably isn't true. But, but um, I can certainly understand why somebody would be unwilling to get a vaccine in the early stages of the pandemic. But what I'm getting at is, putting the wealth issue aside, is... Vaccines were made available to 100% of the American population other than children um, and maybe people that were immunocompromised um, for free. So certainly getting protection from uh, the pandemic, from the virus, was not a wealth issue, yet it became a huge political issue. Well, it's not and entirely true that they were free. They're heavily subsidized. The yeah, they're heavily subsidized. But the, you can walk you can walk into any into any I mean, it's vaccination free. place it's and free get it to, free. to you as a consumer, but it, it's not free in the sense that it's 
you know, made, made all of tax money and all of that. So it's not, well, of course, of course, but, I, but, but it's a public health issue. No, maybe that's an entirely different discussion. Maybe. Yeah, sure. But it is not free. I'm discussing it. I'm discussing it in the context of the public health. I, I don't understand how something like a vaccine. And again, I, I, I do understand anti-vaxxers. I do understand who people, people who think vaccinations might be dangerous because I, I, you know, one of the books I haven't written yet, for instance, is a book about all the abuses in the pharmaceutical industry and how they put out bad products and lied about them yeah. and killed people. That happens. I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not a person, especially I'm not a lawyer who trusts the pharmaceutical industry. So I get being an anti-vaxxer. What I don't get is when you weigh the two, uh, how many vaccinations have killed people versus how many people have been um, killed by the pandemic, it's a no-brainer. It still remains a political issue. I think, I think, I think the idea that it's a no-brainer is why it is a political issue, because that's your personal opinion, which you're entitled to have, right? As, as are you. You exactly. obviously have a you obviously have a different opinion, correct? No, I'm very opposed <laughs> to the vaccine pass. Uh, you're opposed to a vaccine what mandate pass? pass yeah, yeah. I think I think it's I think it's inappropriate to have a, okay. a vaccine mandate. Okay, I, I we'll, we'll agree to disagree on that. Yeah. What 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 I believe is that we and and, and I want to articulate this correctly. Whether or not there's a mandate doesn't bother me. I, I don't care. Um, you know, you're a, a libertarian, so you would obviously oppose uh, a government-forced uh, mandate to do anything, for that, for that matter. Uh, yeah, so I, pretty so much. So I get it. So I get it. Uh, but I'm not even talking about the government. I'm talking about you and me and all of our fellow citizens and we, and we say this, because I'm opposed to vaccines, I'm going to put 10, 15, 20, 30, 100 other people at risk for my personal beliefs. Versus getting a vaccine, maybe, you know, let's, let's talk about the ultimate conspiracy theory. Let's say they, they put a chip in your body. Uh, now, I don't know if you believe that, but... but, but <laughs> no, I don't, I, don't, okay. I don't think there's a chip. I, I'm, glad to, I'm glad to hear that. But let's, let's suppose that happens. If, yeah. you, if you can prevent 100 people from dying by getting a vaccine, put a chip in my body. Go ahead. I have nothing to hide. <laughs> well, the problem with that, Mark, is that if there, if there were a chip in the vaccine, they're not telling you, how the hell do you know it's actually saving 100 people? That, that's, I, that's the I, thing, I, you know? I, you know we're, we're kibitzing here. That's a Yiddish term for kibbing, for kidding. Um, uh, we're, <laughs> I mean, we're not talking reality, but what I'm, what I'm getting at is what, what I find really troubling, putting aside mandates, is the unwillingness of this neighbor to protect that, that one. And I think that's the most important part of how we deal with the pandemic. Forget, forget vaccinations. How about masks? 
So I think here, what you're saying and raising is actually very interesting because I heard this in another debate when it came to the environment. It was this conservative guy talking and he was saying that the most people, right? You have a big debate about climate change. I suppose there's a debate among people. You have people who are, who don't think climate change is real or people who do think climate change is real, right? But these are very like broad terms that don't actually describe the position. And so if you get to, to, if you really talk to people, most likely both sides would agree that preserving the environment is important. Apart from perhaps like the corporate interest, your regular layman Joe who thinks climate change is bullshit is not actually against the environment. Like he doesn't throw paper into the ground and say, ha ha, burn earth, right? Like he, do, he doesn't, he probably cares about the environment. So I think here is the same, it, he just disagrees perhaps to the causes or to the role of government should play in it or whatever. I think here it's the same thing. I don't think, and of course, some people that's the case. And then I agree with you. Selfishness is not good. But I think most people who are against the vaccine or the mask or everything like that, right or wrong, they're not doing this because they don't care about their neighbor. They see the issue differently. And the problem I have with the mandate is that it presupposes that there is a mathematically correct answer. And that is where I'm not exactly sure. And you'd have to be pretty damn convincing for me to believe that this issue has a mathematically clear answer that you can impose on other people. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And so I think that's where the issue comes from. And, and so that, but that, that, it's not that necessarily becomes, selfishness. That becomes an issue of, of whether you trust the government or not. There and, we go. And, and, and uh, as I indicated, I'm someone who sues the government. I'm Good. someone who sues the <laughs> pharmaceutical industries. I'm not going to sit here and say I completely trust those two entities. But, but what I am saying is that, that I, I, I just think we have a duty to each other to, to do what's necessary to protect each other. And, I, and I, I, you know, I, I never really thought about what you just said the way you said it. Um, it might just be different perceptions of how that's done. I think so. Uh, I, I think I, in I, most I, cases, I'll, yeah. To give you an example, uh, the difference between um, masks and, and vaccines. I can see somebody being anti-vaccine much better than I can see somebody being anti-mask. I don't see what harm a mask does to somebody. Now, somebody might say, oh, it smothers me, or oh, it, I, I, I think carbon monoxide is just as dangerous as COVID. I, I, you know, I can't get into the minds of why somebody won't wear a mask, but a lot of it, and, and again, what, what I find mind-blowing about what we're talking about is all of these policies that we're discussing started in the Trump administration. Vaccines, mask wearing, protect your neighbor, uh, let's shut everything down. All of that happened in the Trump administration. Now that it's Biden's football, suddenly it becomes a terrible thing to do. And I, it, I think it's a bit hypocritical. I agree uh, with you. And so I'm, there's, I'm, so there's that as well. My, my perception of it is 
it, that the real debate is not between left and right or liberals and uh, conservatives or Democrats and Republicans. I think the real debate is between a small elite and regular people like you and me. And small elite, by that I mean like a corporate, uh, media, pharmaceutical, government elite who have a world in their hands, basically, right? Where whether, and it's not to seem conspirational, that's not what I mean, but you can't deny the fact that there is an elite, right? I mean, there is a club of people who are billionaires who have a lot more influence than you and me. You'll love right? my books. You'll love my books. <laughs> I honestly, I want to read. I want to read the sex scandal one. I think it, there's there's a there's a scan there's a, 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 a essentially a, a cover up. Um, if you if you if you take, and again, it, they're fiction, but in theory, um, when you talk about a, a a cop shooting an innocent black man, the organization of police officers the police community gathers together as a huge organization and rallies against the victim he must have done something to justify Uh this shooting uh hell even george floyd did something to justify somebody sitting on his neck for nine minutes um, you know, I, it's funny because when I wrote Betrayal in Black and, and then George Floyd, that, that's the fourth book, by the way. When I wrote that book, I wrote it uh, well before George Floyd was killed. But as a social media post, I put out a question, you know, social justice question. Um, yeah, I see you do those on Facebook. When, when, when did... Um, how long will it take? How many black lives have to uh, be taken before we start doing the right thing? I, I don't remember exactly what I what I said, but but the response I got was, "Well, he pa- he tried to pass a counterfeit twenty dollar bill. He deserved what he got." Now I don't know about you, but I don't think passing a twenty dollar bill deserves a death sentence. Do you? No, of course not. But that was before George Floyd. <laughs> it was. I wrote the book before George Floyd. Oh, but not I, the but question, I wrote. Right? But I wrote the question. Okay. After George Floyd was murdered. Okay. That, I was. I was. was okay. I was responding to the George Floyd incident. And that was somebody's oh. response. The 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 overwhelming response, almost every response I got, was essentially for, to to put it into context. He deserved what he got, and I'm going. In other words, the, 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 he committed a crime. The cop's job is to protect us, the global us, from crime. Therefore, Chauvin did the right thing by arresting him and doing what he did. He's, he's the, uh, Floyd's a bad guy, wow. not Chauvin. Now, you, need, you need to get yourself some new followers. <laughs> now, I, well, they weren't, they weren't my followers. They were my critics. Gotcha. Okay. They didn't, like, they didn't like the question I asked. Um, they attacked me for asking that question. A- and my question is, the penalty has to fit the crime. Mm-hmm. I don't have any problem with Chauvin arresting him. I don't even have a problem with him subduing him if he misbehaved. He apparently, 
according to some, misbehaved, didn't, didn't follow the officer's orders completely. I don't have that problem. But he's in handcuffs and leg bracelets, and he's standing on his neck until he's completely Yeah, and it's clearly, clearly like not going well. And, well. I, and, obvi- and obviously the jury felt the same way. So, yeah. But I, I, so- I was shocked by the response that petty crime justifies a murder sentence or the behavior of cops. So that's what book three was about. Yeah, I understand. Uh, if I had to summarize sort of the craziness of the world we have, at least from my American perspective, but I think from being in Poland, I see that it extends to other, other places as well. The world is very similar in some ways in terms of issues. I think you have, so back to, to my idea, you have a small elite, right? And then we have the people. And we, most of the people, apart from some people who are really just kind of brainwashed one way or another by the medias they consume and who are just kind of repeating like the the haters who are like, well, screw him. He passed the counterfeit bill, right? Those guys honestly are just stupid. I don't think they're bad people necessarily. I think they're just (laughs) stupid. They don't really think about. But there's too many of them. Right. Well, there's a a lot of dumb people, but in the non-dumb people, in the. I'm not calling, I'm not calling people dumb. I, 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 no, no, I am. I am. I know you're mis, not. Mis, I am. Misinformed. Mis, mis misinformed. <laughs> sure. Misinformed. And you're right. You're right. It's better to say it like that because it it might be just misinformation. Anyway, so the misinformed people are people who have been maybe brainwashed one way or another. Fine. Let's put them aside. But then there's still genuine differences that exist among people who are perhaps less misinformed. And I think the issue is often painted as a disagreement over fundamental values. And I think that's why there's so much animosity today because it's a disagreement over fundamental values. The other people, they hate freedom and they're all communists. And you know, the other guys, they're, they, they're, they're like savage and they don't respect humanity and kindness, right? And this is attacking on such basic values. So it promotes this sort of anger and these elite benefit from this, right? Because it, it's easy to get votes from people who are more polarized. It's easy to get views. And make money. The truth is, though, most people agree. They just don't necessarily agree one on the solutions. The issues are so complex because of how many of us there are that they just see us a particular side of the issue and focus on that and apply their value to this. And what I'm trying to say, though, is that we don't actually really have to be enemies. We can all talk and through these conversations get to know the other point of view and understand that we're all in this together. And if there is a real battle that we need to somehow get behind, if anything, it's the elite versus the people. It's not the people versus the people. It would help, though, AJ, if the if politicians stop doing it. They're, but they're, they're not going they're, to. They're basically leading the way. You, you, have, you have a division in our politics today, and I've lived longer than you. I've, I've seen an era, several eras, where Republicans and Democrats, while they don't agree on issues, they cooperate a and b discuss um you had a you had a republican president nixon essentially get thrown out of office by a, a republican it wasn't a republican led uh subcommittee but multiple republicans voted to impeach him um you had a clinton impeachment that was party line completely. It was a. It was a, the Republicans that uh, going after him. 
um, two completely different situations. Uh, I criticized the Democrats on the Clinton thing because whether you like Clinton or whether you don't, and I like Clinton a lot, um, his behavior in office was abhorrent. And at least one Democrat should have voted to impeach him. Uh, so I'm, I'm certainly not sitting here as a, as a Democratic apologist. Uh, no, and I, I don't just, think anybody listening would get that impression at all. Um, the question you asked me, by the way, that got us started on all of this was about my latest novel. <laughs> I, yes, I'm it's, immigration. It's, we, we've been talking an hour, and I don't know how long your show is, but... but um, it's pretty much undefined how I, long it I, is. I, I, I did want to mention... Uh, you asked me what it was about and the context in which I write about immigration. And the context I write about immigration, not surprisingly, I guess, would be about um, all of our backgrounds. Where are you sitting right now? You're sitting in Poland, which means what? Which means you're the child of immigrants from another country. Just yeah. as I am, just as everybody except 2% of the American people who are Native Americans. Everybody's an immigrant. Whether you and I were born in America, either our grandpa like yours, uh, or my great-grandfather or my grandfather was born in Poland or in Russia. That's where my family's from. So... What surprises me about our immigration crisis today is how easily we forget where we came from. And, and while I don't support illegal, quote-unquote, or undocumented immigration, I support the right for people to come to this country, show up at the border, and ask for asylum. That's not illegal. That's not undocumented. That's a legal process. And what we've done at the border, when people do that, is we've detained them and literally incarcerated them. We've thrown them in cages. That happened, by the way, in the Obama administration in the Trump administration, and now in the Biden administration. So I don't see it as a political issue. I see it as a moral issue and an issue that, that defines what this country is about and what it should be about. So I wrote a novel that tells a story from two different perspectives. One a South American perspective, and two, a Muslim perspective. In the South American story, two, um, a couple immigrates from Venezuela legally. They get a green card. They get a job. They live in an American city. They have two children. We talk about, we've talked about, you and I, mistrust of government. They're afraid that if they go back to the government, 
and they say, extend my green card or grant me citizenship, instead they're going to get deported. Mm -hmm. So they overstay their visa because they're afraid, because they don't trust, and they become undocumented immigrants. They're still living their life as law-abiding citizens. They're still working and paying taxes. They're still raising their children who are in um, public school. ICE decides to raid the plant that they work at. And they capture documented and undocumented immigrants, and they haul them off to a detention center. ICE then shows up at the school where the kids attend, and they grab the kids, and they ship them off to Texas from Michigan and put them in a children's detention center. Ultimately, the hero of all of my novels, Zachary Blake and his associate, get the parents out of the detention center and create, start a process to make them uh, illegal, legal, uh, documented. Um, but they can't find the kids. Nobody knows where the kids are. That's the um, South American immigrant story of Betrayal at the Border, my new novel. Uh, a... Uh, parents being separated from kids, B, um, panic and confusion at the border, C, can't we find a process that does this better and mm. makes us a more wel- warm and welcoming right. country? Absolutely. The second set of immigrants are documented immigrants. They're naturalized citizens. And there's a war in Syria between the Kurds and the Turks. And near the Turkish border, uh, an area known as Kobani um, is basically the capital of the Kurdish people. Well, that's where these people are from. And Hostilities have ceased, or at least lessened, and a a young woman with American-born children, a child, wants to go back to the old country and uh, have the child meet her grandmother. The husband's opposed to it. He's afraid, but she's stubborn, and she decides to go. She travels to uh, Damascus, gets in a car with a guide, And the car is hijacked by ISIS, and she's imprisoned by ISIS. And Zachary Blake and his team are hired to basically negotiate for her freedom. So the book goes back and forth between these two immigration stories, pretty completely different stories, but a very good look at how dysfunctional. The The human side, A and B, how dysfunctional the, the immigration system is. system is, and C, that just because you're an undocumented immigrant doesn't mean 
that you had illegal or immoral intentions in doing what you did. What happened to these people, and it happens to people over and over and over again in real America, is you, and you, AJ, considering your political beliefs, can sympathize with this completely. Yeah, absolutely. Should I shut my mouth, put my nose to the grindstone, do my work, and live my life, or should I trust that the government will do the right thing and make me a citizen? If I, if I go and they don't do the right thing, they're going to deport me, and I either have to drag my children back to a country they never, they've never known, where it's dangerous, that's why I came here in the first place, Argentina, uh, Venezuela, excuse me, not picking on Argentina, but Venezuela, <laughs> Venezuela had some problems. Um, do I drag my children back to a dangerous country, or, or do I get permanently separated? From them, I get deported. I leave them with my brother or my cousin or somebody who has legal status, and I never see my children again. Yeah, what what a choice! And that's what the trail at the border is about. It's about the choices that not only um, undocumented immigrants make, but documented immigrants make every day. It's interesting. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm an immigrant too, to the U S I never had things of this nature because I came with a green card already. So I was, I was, I came as a permanent resident. So I was, as, you know, as a permanent resident, as okay. a permanent resident. Yeah. So I was, I was lucky to, to, we won it in a lottery with a family. So the, the fears around it were very, well, were pretty much non-existent. Um, now, what I, what I will say that I uh, wanted to say is I think one of the problems is, is that policy, and especially when you want to sell it, has to be clear cut, right? I mean, first of all, when you write a bill, it has to be clear cut. And then even more so when you go talk to people about it and you're trying to get it passed and you're talking to an electorate that has a very short attention span and a lot of things going on, you have to make it clearer and clearer. Whereas the truth is actually really complex. Because as you said, these are genuine human stories. But at the same time, you know, we should have a border. Although I'm not even, sometimes I think about it, what is the moral basis for a border? But you know what I mean? The point is, these issues are not black and white at the end of the day. And we try to make them black and white so that we can function. I mean, you do need them to be black and white to a certain extent to function. Otherwise, we were just going to think and talk all day without getting anything done. But that's what's really complex about the world we have today. And that's why I think I'm a big advocate of more local systems and less big systems. I think our country is too big. The problem is we don't have enough of a grasp on what's going on. And if it were smaller and more local, we could kind of manage these human issues on our own. Perhaps it's just a theory. I, I, I don't know how you manage immigration into the country as a, you know, being a U.S. citizen is a national issue, so I don't know how you manage that locally, but, but I want to push back on something yeah. you said. You said that the standards have to be clear, and, and in, there are laws where the standards have to be clear. And, and just to give you a very, very simple one, you're driving on a freeway, 
and the speed limit is 55. Mm -hmm. You're going 70. You're either going to get lucky and no cop is going to come around or cop is going to pull you over. What are you going to say? Um, oh, I thought this, I thought the standards were lax. <laughs> I thought I could go 70. Uh, you know, it's, it's close enough to 55. Don't give me it. You, you can't give me a ticket. Not, not don't give me a ticket, but you can't because the standard is, is, is not absolutely clear. Not clearly you and I would agree that 55 is the, is the speed limit and the cop has a right to give you a ticket if you're going 70. Right. Yeah. I don't like it, but, but I, all right. <laughs> that's the social contract. <laughs> well, that's your, that's your, that's your big brother complex. I know. Um, uh, but, but put that aside for a second. There is a speed limit. We know there's a speed limit. Right. No, if I get you. If we, if we choose to violate it, we're going to get a ticket if we're caught. Uh, uh, I, don't, I don't think I'm telling you a secret that I rarely go 55. But, but <laughs> be that, <laughs> be I'm dealing with a speeding ticket right now. So all I right. Get you. All right. Um, I don't think immigration's like that. And, and, I, and I'll tell you why. I, I think the story matters. I think that reasons matter. Mm. And I, I think you can set it. I think you can set a standard for, let's say, asylum, and you can say you have to meet certain criteria. But uh, we started this interview by discussing the Holocaust, and I have relatives still alive today who came to this country to escape Nazi tyranny. Russian pogroms. Uh, I told you I'm, I, I have Russian and Polish mm -hmm. on both sides. So, you know, we Jews know oppression. We Jews know discrimination. We know uh, anti-Semitism. We know um, mistreatment. We know tyranny. We know abuse. I would hate to think, and I, I and I really can't testify to this, but I would hate to think that when my grandparents and great-grandparents came to this country and went to Ellis Island, they were treated the way um, immigrants are being treated at the southern border today. And I'll repeat what I said earlier. Requesting asylum is not a process that doesn't comply with current immigration standards. It is legal to come to this country, show up at the border, and request asylum. You may not be granted it, and choosing to stay might make you, quote, undocumented or illegal, but arriving there gets you put in prison? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's got to change. That's yeah. that's got to change. And and hopefully your ancestors weren't treated like that. Hopefully you weren't treated like that. And I don't see any reason why they're treated like that. I agree with you. Does it surprise you that ISIS kidnaps American citizens in Syria on the way to Kobani? Doesn't surprise me. So that part of the story, her choosing to go to Syria. Um, is not to me as as abhorrent as what happened to the 
family from Venezuela. Why did I choose to tell that story? I much more so about our foreign policy and creating enemies here, there, and everywhere when we should be building bridges instead of walls. Uh, for the life of me, I don't understand why we do things almost every day that cause people to hate us. Uh, and that's what we do in the Middle East. Yeah, and it's brought us a ton I, of problems. I don't, I, I don't see why support for Israel has to include a lack of support or a lack of peace initiatives with other countries in the region. And that's why I, that's why I added that second story. I, I, it was more a foreign policy story than it was an immigration story. But, it, but a, a realistic story, nonetheless. American citizens, as we just found out, that young man who just got released um, from prison for simply being a reporter, is from my hometown. And my mother, my wife, rather, knows his mother. Who are you referring to? Um, I can't think of his name. But it's going on right now? Is he just got released. He, he got sentenced in, in um, Le Lesnar is his name? Let me look it up. I have the internet right here. L-E-S-N-E-R. Lesnar, journalist, right? Yeah. Is that him? Uh, let me see. And where did he get released from? I want to say it, Mariner. I'm not finding anything here. Journalist released. American journalist Danny Fenster. Yeah. Released from jail in Myanmar. Yeah. Uh, he, he just got released. Why did, they, why did they imprison him? Because he's an American journalist who had the audacity to criticize their um, autocratic government. Um, now, I, I, guess, I, I guess to a degree, if, if you're subject to that kind of rule, um, you know, maybe get out of there before you criticize them. <laughs> I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't know. But I... The fact of the matter is, you know, George Bush once said, and I, I, I always thought it was kind of a stupid little comment, um, but George W. Bush said they hate us because, for our freedom. Um, maybe that's true. Maybe that's exactly why they hate us. Or also because we keep meddling in their affairs, but, you know. <laughs> no, but, but, you, but you and I can have a, a rather free conversation about how we feel about our government without being arrested for it. That's true. Uh, and we're very lucky to have that. There are, there, are very, there are very few countries where you can have that conversation like you can have it in America. I know. And I, and I wanted to thank you as we, as we wrap up. I wanted to thank you because I think you're a very uh, good conversationalist. And I thought you were extremely well-balanced. And it's a pleasure speaking to you because I can tell you have your own ideas and you are mindful of your own biases and are, and, are, and are trying to stick as much to the truth instead of the convenient sort of one-two punch knockout that advances uh, your 
whatever your beliefs may be. And so I think that's awesome. I think that's exactly the kind of mentality we need to open discourse, trying to uh, see each other as human beings, trying to figure out this complex world we live in and not speaking from our egos, but speaking from, from our minds and trying to figure it out with our hearts and with our minds combined. So Mark, thank you so much. Uh, where can we learn more about you? Perhaps your website, uh, your Facebook, your Twitter, and where can we get your books? My books are available on Amazon and, and all other electronic booksellers. I, 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 it's hard to get a, a printed copy from anywhere but the internet. Um, you can't go into a bookstore and find my books. Uh, although I, I I I have had some reports that that uh, a few libraries have them, and uh, which I'm honored by, and and a, a a few bookstores, but but for the most part, you can get my books online, wherever you expect to get an online book, like BarnesandNoble.com or Amazon, or um, you know any any online bookstore. Uh, you can get my books at MarkMBello.com. That's M A R K middle initial M B E L L O. And that's where you can also get that free novella, which is a neat little 39 page, uh, Holocaust escape story. Um, the reason Zachary Blake is alive today, the fictional character is because his grandfather escaped from Auschwitz. Mm, so um, that's how you link them. Uh, and, uh, this, by the way, I, I, to digress a second, the, Novella not only tells the story of the uh, Holocaust escape, but it's about a promise made from a grandfather to a grandson. And the, the grandfather on, on the eve of Zachary's bar mitzvah, it's a prequel to the novel, uh, has promised that he would tell Zachary for the first time the story of his escape from Auschwitz. And the story is um at least according to the novella is the once he hears the story that's the main reason he decides to become a lawyer and represent uh innocent civilians against um oppressive entities uh, i don't want to say the government exclusively yeah yeah he, 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 ta he takes he 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 has become over over the seven novels. I'm writing my eighth. I was actually working on my eighth novel right before I called you. Um, the the progression of Zachary from book one to book seven is fascinating. Uh, and without spoiling it for anybody, because obviously, and, and I don't think it does. Uh, if you know that seven novels, then you know he was successful in the first. That can't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he didn't uh, die, so I, right? <laughs> so, I, so I don't. So I don't think it's a spoiler alert necessarily. But if 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 you feel it is, I apologize to all your listeners. Um, but <laughs> but if you if you track his progression, he almost becomes a. It almost becomes Goliath versus Goliath. The beauty of Zachary. And he's achieved much more than I did. One of the things I love about him is he's the lawyer I would have liked to be. Um, but 
He has, he has balanced the scales. Few of us get to do that. Now when he takes on Goliath, he takes them on as Goliath too. It's great. He can match them dollar for dollar. He can match power to power. It's no longer this poor little uh, one-office lawyer who doesn't know where his next buck's coming from, which is how Zachary starts in Betrayal of Faith. He's now a substantial hero, and it's a much more compelling battle when you have the power to battle your powerful foe. I don't want to, I don't want to uh, tell you what to do, but it would be cool if in one of the books he got so powerful that perhaps he started, <laughs> he started erring on the other side of the line and, and maybe had to question himself. I don't, and... I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. I don't <laughs> You're too attached. I, I, I love him too much. I, can't, I don't know. It's, a, it's an interesting idea. You write it. <laughs> all right mark well thank you so much i honestly really appreciate it and i look forward to having more conversations with you i think this I'd, was really I'd, enjoyable I'd be, I'd be happy to thanks right, for mark. having me yeah thank you